0: We had a reading from Acts chapter 5. I'm really going to concentrate on verses 1 through 11, but I hate to leave all the rest of that out. There's so much there, and it's so important to the context of what's going on. Um, I may just allude a little to that last part, but mostly sections 1 through 11. In fact, uh, to start, get to chapter 5, verse 1, I want to remind you of what happened in chapter 4. The church had been assembled for prayer, and there was this great prayer meeting where the Lord came and shook the place where they were meeting. But you may remember that they were gathered for prayer because they had just suffered a lot of persecution. Peter and John had already been arrested, and um, if I remember correctly, even... uh, threatened, if not beaten them, to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. That's why in chapter 5 they say, didn't we tell you all not to be doing this, but yet you're doing it? And again there, uh, I think in chapter 4 they said, you decide whether it's right or not that we follow you, but we're going to uh, follow God. And then here they said kind of the same thing. Hey, we got to speak what we've seen and heard. We, we have no choice. Um, and one of the reasons that uh, so many people uh, were just... Um, Determined in the last couple of years to have church and worship services and to gather was because of what Acts chapter four and five uh, presents to us the fact that no matter what the authorities around us tell us to do we have an obligation under God to be obedient and to worship Him and to gather um, in His name and to do what He's commanded us to do and um, it's uh, I'm going to allude back to some Old Testament in a minute we already read Leviticus chapter. I wanted to do that to just show you this is not something new. Uh, God has dealt with sin seriously since its beginnings in mankind. And we'll talk about that a little more too as we go on. But I want to remind you this about persecution. Um, We look at it and we're scared by it, usually frightened by it. We pray for it every week and pray not for persecution. We pray for those who are persecuted but one of, or some of the truths about persecution and what it does to the church when it comes, it brings the church together physically and spiritually. We see that in chapter 4. It brought the church together. They prayed because they some of their own had been arrested. And then eventually God brought them back to them and they came together not only spiritually to pray but also physically. Persecution often clarifies the purposes of God. Here again, it caused the disciples, the apostles, to stand up and say in front of everybody hey, uh, God's purpose is for his people to gather and to preach the gospel and we're going to do that and they even preached the gospel in the temple in the place that they were commanded not to preach it they still went and did what they were told by God to do persecution often br- brings about bold and powerful preaching Hey, once you've been threatened or, uh, or even some of you have been killed and you're reminded that the worst anybody, any power in this world can do is to take your uh, temporal life that doesn't leave much but boldness. Hey, uh, I'm not going to leave here until God takes me or allows me to be taken, so I'm just going to go ahead and preach the truth. And that kind of boldness, it's kind of sad that our churches in uh, in America especially have abandoned any kind of bold preaching against sin without being faced with persecution. Um also persecution brings about the grace of God manifested in a very visible way Um, it just causes the people to see how God keeps his promises not only that but ministry was brought to the forefront again we see in Acts chapter 5 that we just read um, it brought the people together chapter 4 it brought them together and it not only brought them together for bold preaching but also they continued to teach and make disciples you see that and they continued to meet and then, of course, it highlights a radical sacrifice. Just all the people come together and start doing radical things. And that's why in the end of chapter 4, we see um, people started uh, meeting together and bringing all their proceeds together and selling things they had, bringing it to the apostles' feet and dist- so that they could distribute it as was needed to the people who were in need. And even one named Barnabas there at the end of chapter 4 he sells a field that belonged to him and brought all the money and laid it to the apostles' feet for him to distribute as needed. And that's why you get to chapter 5, verse 1, we read about this uh, Ananias and Sapphira who did the same thing that Barnabas did, but they lied about it. And that's the whole point, is what they did was, and we'll talk about it more in a minute, They, it wasn't that they... <laughs> couldn't it wasn't that they uh, brought uh, the amount of money they brought wasn't the issue the fact was they had lied about what they had sold it for and we'll talk about that more in a minute so two things I want you to be aware of as you leave chapter four and come into chapter five other than this these thoughts that I gave you about persecution it tells us the bible does that grace great grace was upon all the church and then as I mentioned this radical sacrifice of Barnabas he had this piece of land. He sold and just said, "Here, everything I need. Everything I took from this, I want you to have. I want people in need to be taken care of." Now, in contrast, chapter five, instead of great grace, we see great fear upon everybody. So you go from this moment of great grace to great fear because of what happened to Ananias. And Sapphira, this sin of theirs. So you have good things going on. You have the church building. They're facing persecution, which is not unfamiliar. Fulfillment of Christ's words. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But they hated me. They'll hate you. The church is definitely storming the gates of hell, so to speak, with the gospel. People are being saved. And even in the face of persecution, Peter and John was arrested, threatened, But they go, um, they don't hush. They keep preaching. They're arrested, put into prison. God sends angels to just take them right out of prison, not even opening the doors. Chapter 5 brings us all this great narrative. But we also see Satan at work wreaking havoc in the best way he can on the church, but this time not on the outside of the church, He comes inside the church to try to attack. You may remember Paul warned the church of this. After his departure he said wolves will be coming at you. They will rise up, not in the world, from among your own ranks. That's still the most deadly thing for the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Satan has no power over the church. The world has no power over the church. The church will succeed, but the greatest harm brought upon the church is brought from within its own self. Always has been and always will be. It can dampen the spiritual temperature of the church. I mean, just look around. It's daily that we read another church leader has fallen. Another church has gone off the deep end. Another church has allowed something that God hates to be brought into the church and paraded around as if it is to be celebrated. church has not heeded this warning from scripture it's almost like we ignore these kinds of things it's easy to say well leviticus chapter 10 man that was crazy that's old testament okay but acts chapter 5 was after the resurrection and these two people dropped dead because of their sin now you say well i don't see that happening today well i don't know um if you think sin won't destroy you, just keep living in it and let it keep festering and growing and don't deal with it and don't repent of it and don't bring it to God. It'll kill you one way or another. You may not drop dead instantly, but sin will destroy you. Church just simply hasn't heeded this warning. Church is too busy trying to conform to the world, too little time trying to conform to God's standards. I think we got to get back to uh, what we see in scripture the preaching of the gospel and the preaching against not the sin of the world but the sin of the church and i could stand up here and preach against the sin of the world all day long and you all agree with me say yeah man that's right but you notice these people that were persecuting the church were the religious people we tend to look at this and say oh these were the these were the authorities. Yeah, these were the Jewish authorities. These were the religious authorities. We don't preach enough and teach enough. I think maybe we try to do that here to call us to repentance, not then. I mean, yeah, if you're here and you don't know Christ, I'm going to call you before I finish to turn to Christ away from your sin and be saved because you will be lost and you will die in your sin and you will spend eternity in hell. That's the truth. But I think at the same time, we have a responsibility under the Word of God to call all of us who believe to repentance constantly so that we will continue to be reminded, like the songs that we sang, about who ransomed us and what he ransomed us out of and what he ransomed us to. I love that word ransom, by the way, because people didn't get ransomed based on what they did. They had no part. It wasn't like they had anything to offer. Say, here, I'll give you this if you'll ransom me. No, that's why you were ransomed. You had nothing. And somebody ransomed you out of what you were in, the bondage you are in. It's just such a beautiful picture. That one word, it's a beautiful picture of what God did. He, He ransomed us out of our sin based on nothing that we have done. Unfortunately, so many churches and so many people in churches cannot discern even a false prophet among them and false teaching. John warned us in his epistle. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit. See whether they are from God. There are a lot of false prophets that have gone into the world, going out into the world, out of the church. So we need to be able to discern that. Now, many of you are able to, and I thank God for you, but um, there's a lot around us who can't holiness and conformity to God's righteous law, those kind of things barely, rarely talked about. And I know I can't conform to God's law. I have no power within me to do that. But I'm called to it. And so when I realize I don't conform to it, that suggests and highlights there's a problem in me, not a problem with God. And so I have to continually go back to God and repent and ask for a desire from Christ and the ability to keep His word To be obedient. Those things we were just singing about. Even our obedience don't come from us, but we need obedience, right? We need conviction. A word that we think is an old-fashioned word sometimes. But it's not. We have to put something in. I know we don't have the ability to, but we can't just sit around and do nothing and expect sin to magically be dealt with. God deals with our sin. But we're called to confess it and repent. And yes, even those things come from God. But if you have none in your life, it's time to be worried. If there's never any confession, repentance, sorrow over your sin, that's not a good thing. So we get to Acts chapter five, and we're trying to figure out what in the world's going on here. Ananias, Peter says to him, "Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit?" Much like with Judas as he betrayed Jesus, Peter holds Ananias accountable for what Satan has done. That's opposite of what a lot of us want to do. We want to we want to hold Satan accountable for what we've done. But here and in other places in Scripture, the person's held accountable for what Satan's done. Why has Satan, he says, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? We've been given weapons for warfare against evil. And you remember the weapons of our warfare that destroy strongholds are this Ar- it, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete now, I know I've said this often but spiritual warfare is a thing of the mind and you, you, you can't just hear false teaching listen to false teaching and not discern that it's false and you can't not read the word of God And know the difference in truth and falsehood, and expect to have any kind of obedience in your life. It's a mind thing. And so Peter doesn't mind here looking in the eye and saying, Why did you allow Satan to talk into lying like this? Why would you lie to the Holy Spirit? And I do believe, I sort of mentioned this, what's going on here. Again, there was nothing wrong with the amount of money that they wanted to give because Peter even points that out. Once you sold it, wasn't all that within your power to do with it what you wanted to? So why would you come here basically and say, I sold this land for X amount of money and here it all is when the truth is you sold it for X amount of money, kept some, and then pretended like you sold it for the only the amount you brought. I don't know why they did it other than I guess they just wanted to feel like they're a part of this they wanted to get in on it but they didn't want to give it all like Barnabas had done but these sacrifices I remind you that God called them to and that he calls us to are voluntary and certainly these sacrifices they weren't required this was not communism as some people point out this wasn't uh, all the rich people are going to take over and just give the poor people stuff and they'll never have to do anything. This was an effort to try to get the people of God to a place where they could all work and serve. But it's all sacrificial and voluntary. God teaches us that. That's the way our giving is. It's to be sacrificial and it's to be voluntary. That's why we don't teach a lot about Ten percent around here on a tithe I think if you study the Old Testament a tithe really was just the beginning of giving giving is really sacrificial in the New Testament I don't think it's taught the idea of tithing I think the idea is giving and you give sacrificially according to what you have and that's what the church was doing and so this Ananias comes along and he and his wife conspired together to lie about what they were going to give and there was no sense in it it wasn't It's not like anybody would, would have known or cared what they gave, but they lied about what they had made and then what they were given. So they weren't really given what they said. And I don't understand why that sin bothered God so much that he killed both of them, but he did. That's God's business. But I think the same as in the Old Testament in Leviticus where we read... God has a standard and he has a way that he will be worshipped and he will not accept another way. So no matter what that way is and how bad you think it is or how just a little, it might be a little off, but it's not that far off, God takes seriously his word. Because people do the same thing with Adam and Eve. Well, I mean, come on, they just disobeyed that one thing. I mean, that was the one thing. It was basically at that time the only one thing they were told not to do and they did it. And so sometimes I think we are guilty of doing the same thing with our own sin. Well, this is not that big of a deal. I'm sure that's what they thought. This is not a big deal. I mean, it's not like we're, it's not like we're uh, stealing from people. I mean, this is our own money. We're, but Peter points out, hey, you didn't lie to people. You lied to God. And it's a good reminder that our sin is always against God. It's not. Yeah, we sin against people, but our sin ultimately is against God. God is the only one that's worthy enough and holy enough that our sin would be an affront to Him. And this is just an awful scene. This Ananias drops dead. His wife doesn't even know. They've already carried him out outside of town or wherever and buried him and are almost back when Sapphire comes in and tells the same line. She drops dead and they have to go bury her. And so it's no wonder that verse 11 says great fear came upon everyone. Everyone who heard these things. And later on if you were paying attention in chapter 5 it even says hey everybody was they kind of respected the church there for a while. Hey not necessarily want to join them but they respected them. It was a fear. Because this sin this is what sin does I think we forget this Nadab and Abihu is an example of this is what sin does it destroys this is what sin does it destroys and we want to, we want to try to you know make everything relative well, I mean really should they have died for the sin? well the truth is every person that ever makes a sin should die for it. that's the whole purpose that Christ had to come. This is where we mess up by telling people, you are are worthy of Jesus coming. No, if you would have been worthy, he wouldn't have had to come. All of us are unworthy, so he came. Because even the smallest, little bitty, tiny sin that we could think of to commit is worthy of death. The wage of sin is death, not the wages of certain sins. The wage of sin is death. And that's what I want you to note and sort of take away from this First, is that sin is serious. It's always against God. This, you might say, was the first church discipline case. It's harsh. And, again, I don't know what was so serious about this, why God used this to make an example of. But we are told that they kept back part of the proceeds this phrase or this word that's translated kept back is only used one other time in the New Testament and it's in Titus 2.10. And there Paul is exhorting the older men of the church to teach the younger men and don't be pilferers. Or in other words, do not keep back that which does not belong to them, especially in money. Now in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 7 the same word is used. When Achan took of the accursed things and hid it in his tent. And there we are told in the Greek New Testament of Joshua 7, Achan kept back. He pilfered what was not his. And there you might remember, not only did Achan and his whole family get killed by God, but all of Israel suffered because of this one sin. So God did kill Achan and his whole family in order to rid the camp of sin and cleanse the camp. And there again... He does it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 to remind us of the seriousness of sin. And the seriousness of sin if it's not dealt with in the church. If Ananias and Sapphira were left there, hey, y'all, y'all don't need to do this again. Well, where would that go from there? How much more sin would that cause to be brought into the church? And it's just a picture of what happens when we don't deal with our sin. Which is why... As I mentioned earlier, we ought to preach this way and call people to repentance and confession because the best thing for all of us is for all of us individually to deal with our sin before God, so that it doesn't become a problem for all of us, and that's me included. Your your elders' sin on can infiltrate and bother all of it, can destroy the whole thing. It's not only a picture of individually what it can do to us. That old way of describing sin, take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay. I don't remember the rest of it. Cost you more than you want to pay. All those things. It, it can do that not just for you and you and you and me, but it can eventually do it for... It, it'll. It'll. It's like cancer. In fact, the Bible describes it sometimes that way. It just grows and it becomes... It festers and becomes a problem all around us. And then it gives you a bad testimony anyway to the world, which we don't want to do and we're commanded not to do. Which is what's so interesting to me when it, we read in Acts chapter 5, God killed these two people like this and great fear come upon the people. And it doesn't say, they just said, man, I don't go around that place. It said they respected them. They respected that, hey, this God that they serve is pretty serious. And I think that's why the Bible says not many of them desired I can't remember how the King James said it's something like that not many dared join them because they realize this is a serious thing and you know it's one of the reasons we, we try to make such an effort when we take new members here to let you know that this is a serious thing this is not just hey we're just up here to see how many people we can get in a building and, and make a good name for ourselves so people think man there, that must be a cool place to be a lot of people up there no, we want, you know, this is a serious thing. This is the church of the living God. This is the God who has killed people because of sin. Okay, And even later in the New Testament, on several occasions, two of the apostles at least, I'm thinking uh, Paul in Corinthians and John also make a statement that some people have died because of their sin. There is a sin unto death. And Paul says in the church of Corinth, some of you have sinned so much in the area of the Lord's Supper that you've even sinned till, dead, till they're dead. And I know we don't like to think about that, but that's what the Bible teaches us, that sin is serious. It's very serious. Now, if we have to administer church discipline, obviously, this is not the route we take anymore. God has commanded us what to do. It does include killing people. And besides, we don't know exactly how this happened. Was it through the power of the apostle that simply this death came? Was it just God did it and even the apostle was standing back going, wow, they just died right there. We don't know. But I think it is for us to remember that we need to deal with it swiftly, not only individually, but corporately, if it can be dealt with individually. And that's always the hope in church discipline, by the way, is that people that need to repent of some public known sin or repent so it did not have to become an issue for everybody we do exhaust every effort accorded, afforded us in scripture to encourage repentance and restoration but if it doesn't come that has to be dealt with we see that in the scriptures too in the New Testament we see Paul instructing a church for example to turn a man out because he wouldn't repent Get them out of your fellowship. Because we don't want to put forth the image or the idea that we're okay with sin. Because all of us know we sin and we know at times we sin and we wish we didn't and sometimes we sin and as the Bible says, even sin's good for an hour. We some even enjoy our sin and then we realize we... Because of the Spirit, we repent of it and we want to be away from it because we ought to hate it. Spurgeon painted a picture of sin this way. If I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Well, sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Certainly the answer is no. We shouldn't love it. We should hate it. We have to hate it deal with it because it's against God and we have to deal with it in order to stop the spread of more sin and to maintain the purity of the church which is the second point I want to draw from this passage. The zealousness for the purity of the church. What do I mean by purity? Well, somebody defined the purity of the church this way. is degree or freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church. So the purity of the church is its degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church. So the natural question would be, what is God's revealed will for the church? Well, there's a lot of places to find that. 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. So our doctrine has to be truth and built on truth. Romans 14 and 17 says, The kingdom of God is not uh, not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So our conduct is to be consistent with truth. We know that Jesus said to the church, Go and make disciples. Teach them everything I've taught you. (coughs) The will of God for the church is that it be the pillar and ground of truth and that we do teach correct doctrine. and We do make disciples. And that we love purity and hate sin. And yes, we fail at it. We stink at it because of our nature. But again, I believe that's the part of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You constantly go to God. Lord, right now I'm not hating my sin. I don't understand that. I need hatred for my sin. I need repentance for my sin. I need you to work this out. And again, I say, if you can sin and sin and sin and it does not bother you and your conscience is clear, that's not a good thing. You should not be able to do that as a child of God. It ought to bother you. And if it doesn't, again, make your calling and election sure. I don't want you to doubt your salvation. I don't want you to doubt God, but I don't think that's what uh, making your election sure does. It just continues to strengthen your faith in Christ because you're reminded okay I can't do this obviously because all I do is sin so if Christ died for my sin then my sin has been dealt with then God has offered me forgiveness in Christ he's not offering it he has made it mine he's given it to me and so if I have forgiveness and I have redemption and I've been purchased out of it then as Paul points out at one point then why do I keep living as though I'm in bondage God, get me out of this bondage. Give me a desire from your grace and because of Christ to live accordingly because I can't do it on my own. And then we'll give him the glory for it all because we know it belongs to him. Lastly, a zealousness for the holiness of God. We ought to proclaim and guard the holiness of God. Often the scriptures call us to that. We can't make God famous, but we can proclaim His holiness. And we can guard against those who don't. Christ died for the church and gave Himself for it that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Yes, personal holiness is important, but ultimately we only would care about personal holiness if we care about God's holiness. The true church will be properly adorned for her bridegroom. So through the preaching and teaching of the word of God, we are told God washes and sanctifies and cleanses his church. As the word is taught, sin is revealed and repentance will come because we are told we are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, the holy nation his own special people that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light this is why we can't afford to be an entertainment oriented church or a church that practices some kind of easy believ- believism or shallow doctrine or that does not preach against sin because we have to be about the father's business We are the ground and pillar of truth. Listen. There's no political party that's going to be the ground and pillar of truth. It's up to the church. We're to be living pure lives. We're to be teaching pure doctrine. We're to be singing pure songs. And when we find ourselves not doing that, then we must repent and get back to doing it. Or ask God to give us repentance and get back the degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and the degree of conformity to God's revealed will for his church because correct doctrine does promote correct conduct and conformity to God's will because bad doctrine and heretical doctrine only brings damnation so the next time you read this story I hope you'll be reminded of these truths sin is serious that god is concerned about the purity of his church he's coming back to get the pure church and i know that doesn't mean uh, we can purify ourselves by what we do we're purified because of christ but there's got to be uh there's got to be some place in your life where god is demonstrating himself the Spirit within you is conforming you to His will. There's got to be some, hey, this is what I used to do because I was dead, but now I've been resurrected to new life, and this is what I do. Don't do it perfectly. Some days I don't want to do it, but there is some, there is some, what I was and what I am. I mean, at its most simple level, the salvation of the Lord has to be a testimony of what I was and what I am, at least. God, help us to just desire at least and run after the holiness of God. And in the process, um, He'll give us a love for His Word and good doctrine and a hatred of sin. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We do thank you for your Word. And God, we ask for help in all this because it's not like we can just say it and start doing it. It's not like making a New Year's resolution. This is so important. bigger than that and we need your grace and mercy and your mercy and grace so much bigger than our sin and we praise you for that and so we ask for a desire to leave our sin behind and abstain from it and hate it enough to turn from it to turn to you God we know that all comes from you so we trust you to give us that by your spirit that you would help us to be transformed and not conform to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might know what your will is because it's clear in the scripture and so I pray that you would help us to live that way and God correct us when we don't and thank you for these examples we have of how serious you take sin you've, you, you've taken it so serious that you became like us that you might Take away our sin. Took our place and we praise you for that. We exalt your name today in Jesus we pray. Amen.